Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Root and Roots Show on blogtalkradio.com. Now here's your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you the best in music, information, and history. Well, I want to say good evening to everyone out there. This is Greg Rashid, the host of the Root and Roots Show. We're heard Fridays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time live and also Saturdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time Live. But many folks listen to this show on a delayed basis at their convenience, either on iTunes or other social media uh, websites, or they go and listen on Saturdays or Wednesdays on KUHS Radio in Denver, Colorado. And I want to say hi to my friends out there in Colorado, and especially to Henry Archuleta for creating this great station at KUHS Radio, and I'm happy tonight because I'm going to actually have, I love when I have folks from what I consider, even though I'm from D.C. and in the D.C. area right now, I spent 20 years in Colorado, and I love it. I'm looking forward to one day getting back there and living again, and I just consider it my home, and I'm always happy to have someone to interview from, you know, that's living in Colorado, that's there, and usually I play music at this time, but this this is so important, this the information in the book we're about to talk about is I'm just going to get into the interview, and we'll play music later on. But I'm happy to have on this evening the author of the book, Just Medicine, A Cure for Racial Inequality in American Healthcare. Such a timely book to come out. And I'm talking about Dana Bowen Matthew, lawyer um, teaching in the law school, if not mistaken, at the University of Colorado. And I just want to say hi hi there. How are you doing there, Dana? Hi, Greg. Thank you for having me on your program tonight. I thank you, one, for writing this book. It's very important because I love, I love to get information of just someone who's thinking outside of the box. And I like the fact that in the book you keep you, you say that you know you're going to get criticized. That you're going to, you know, yeah. that what you're saying in here is not what people are used to hearing. And listeners, you can join in if you're listening live at 424-675-8315, 424-675-8315. So first of all, Dana, just tell us, what's the, the genus of the book? What made you decide to actually write this book and made you, you know, because you're a lawyer, but you're thinking about the health field. Just what, you know, what inspired you to do that? Well, Greg, I have been thinking about health inequity for years and watching all the efforts that have been undertaken by policymakers and hospitals and physicians really stall. We're not getting anywhere anymore. Um, and the fact that I'm married to a doctor, I know lots of patients who are suffering from the inequalities, just made me have to start thinking, like you said, outside of the box. We can't tolerate the inequalities any longer, and and that was the genesis of my idea for the book. And you really have done a great job again. I keep saying that, but it, reading this, and there are a number of chapters I had to reread again to really grasp what you, know, what you were talking about. The one thing, that really made me sad near the beginning of the book when you start talking about the study, and I want you to talk to my listeners about the study that 
W. E. B. Du Bois did, I guess, in nineteen the turn of the twentieth century. But it's what he's talking about is what he could have did. You know, the same study could have been done last year. And just talk about that. Oh, Greg, that's so perceptive of you. W. E. B. Du Bois was one of the first empirical sociologists and uh, showed us the sociological methods to really understand deep societal problems. And you're right, his study was not just about health care inequality, but about how the environment in which people live can affect their poor health. So he was particularly interested in looking at inequities in the way that blacks were housed, um, in the environments that they worked in, in the air that they breathed. And that showed the reasons, he used that to show the reasons why blacks actually were suffering shorter lifespans and sicker life outcomes. Um, and that could be written today. You're exactly right. I mean, nothing, you know, as you say in the book, there are some improvements in the 21st century, but still basically the basis of what he was saying still exists today, which is very, very unfortunate. And the thing, you know, what also got me as I was reading the book is you had a different take on Obamacare that we don't, here, because what you say, and I want you to explain this about basically that what President Obama did is open it up so everyone could had access to health care, but I want you to finish that statement because it's very important. That's been missing in the whole dialogue about health care. Well, I thank you for asking. Access is not enough. And that's the way I'd, I would finish that statement. So, and, and Obamacare has done a phenomenal job, in my opinion, of increasing access to health care. But if the health care that black and brown and native and Asian populations access is unequal, then that, I argue, is a reason we have stalled and won't equalize health outcomes. So getting access is one thing. But I would go further and say the Affordable Care Act, the ACA, does do something else. It does strengthen the anti-discrimination law, which is my idea for how we need to address and fix this problem. It does strengthen the anti-discrimination law, taking Title VI a lot further and applying it specifically to health care. You have now got a strong law that says no person on the basis of color, race, or national origin should be denied the benefit of equal health care, both under Title VI and under the Affordable Care Act in a part called Section 1557, uh, 1557, Greg. See, most lay people, most people in general, would not even look at that in the Civil Rights Act of 64. They wouldn't even notice that or get down to read that, you know, and and because, you know, someone like you had, was able to do that, you're opening up a different dialogue. And I want to ask you before we go further with that, talk a little bit about the whole, um, it, it kind of opened a lot of people's eyes. This, um, what was this thing, this report from the Institute of Medicine, I think the Unequal Treatment Report? Yes. Brian Smedley and his uh, committee profoundly changed the discussion 
about inequality in health care by documenting hundreds of reports that showed facts that cannot be assailed, facts like blacks are two times more likely to die before the age of 75 from heart disease, that whites are much more likely to even get flu shots than blacks are. I find the cancer statistics in the Institute of Medicine's report called Unequal Treatment particularly enlightening because in those cancer statistics, you don't only see that blacks are 33% more at risk for every type of cancer, but you see that the treatment minority patients get is different. They get diagnosed later, which you might say, oh, well, that's because they don't go to the doctor. No, well, after you control for the late diagnosis, they get treated for the cancers less intensively. And you might say, well, that's because of biological differences. No, once you control for those biological differences, right. you find they even get educated differently. They get different options. And so the unequal Elaborate on that because that's a key, you know, yeah, really elaborate on that because that's something that um, when I was in Colorado, I used to work with a um, group of, you probably know them, the um, Center for African American Health out of Denver. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, Grant Yeah, Jones. they're great people. Yeah, great Grant Jones people. Yeah. and Bev Johnson mm-hmm. and all, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's what they were uh, saying, and I'm talking about over 10 years ago. They were throwing that out, but talk a little more about that. Well, the Center for African American Health is particularly uh, valuable because um, this inequality problem is a complicated one, and it has to be addressed from all different angles. And uh, the Center for African American Health does so from a educational perspective, bringing the education to the community of how to improve health behaviors. They do so from an advocacy standpoint, so they are advocating to see more minority physicians trained and employed and reimbursed in Colorado. So there are lots of different angles at which this problem of inequality needs to be addressed. So, of course, as a lawyer, I believe inequality is fundamental, flat-out injustice, and that's why I became a lawyer. And so I want to see the law changed because I believe that's going to fundamentally change the social norms that are currently accepting inequality in health care. And I hope that comes to pass. And, again, listeners, you can join in at 424-675-8315. I'm talking to Dana Bowen Matthew, the author of the book, Just Medicine, A Cure for Racial Inequality in American Health Care. And especially you folks who are listening in Colorado, because you've got a native Colorado. Well, I don't know if you're actually from Colorado, but you're living there. <laughs> So please call in. Go ahead. I was intrigued by your introduction because I live in Colorado, but right now I'm working in Washington, D.C., so it's almost as if we switched places. Um, Oh, my goodness. Isn't that that funny? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's funny. (laughs) That is really something there. But um, the thing, you know, folks, you mentioned something in the book about the whole – and I'm going back to the nineteenth century in particular with uh, the issue of slavery there's something that we forget now we know that you know our ancestors were considered property less than you know a third human, 
but you rarely, and I've read a lot about what was going on in the plantation, but you talk about the whole, what the, you know, what the plantation owners were doing as far as trying to treat our ancestors. And talk a little bit about that and how, you know, what type of conditions they were really in, because it's kind of still going on now in a different sense. Yeah, thank you for that question. So uh, I raised the laws that were in place during slavery to make the fundamental point that law and health are intertwined. They are intertwined in that when we have laws that form a social climate that will not tolerate discrimination, we can see that health outcomes are better. We see that health is equalized among majority and minority populations. And conversely, when we have laws that are not enforcing justice and equality, then health suffers as well. So slavery was one example. I want to include so many other examples. Um, Vagrancy laws that were discriminatory. Uh, We used to have a law in this country called the Greaser Act, if you uh, can imagine such a horrible thing. Um, But these vagrancy laws were used to make sure that people of color had to live in neighborhoods that were unsanitary, that were crowded. Um, We used to have laws that zoned people into ghetto neighborhoods where immigrants suffered poor health care. And I use these historical examples just to make the point that even today we must change the law so that it does not tolerate the inequality that we are seeing in health care. You know, and I know that some folks out there would argue, well, you know, you can change the law and all, but you still got the issue of racism and you got a lot of these physicians who are, you know, out and out racist. And what do you, what do you say to that? There is something called the expressive value or function of law. And by that I mean law makes a statement about the norms that will be acceptable in society in order to change the environment. So my book is about unconscious racism. It's not about the racist bigot who tells you you are the N-word or calls you the S-word, out and out hates you and intends to let you know that they hate you. That's not what's going on in medicine, I contend, most of the time. But rather what's going on is unconscious racism. People that do not intend to discriminate do so in what I contend are six different ways in the medical system. When they do this, they do so in an environment right now that says that's okay. Everybody has unconscious biases. Everybody has some negative thoughts. We can't control these, and the law allows this. I'm saying no, the law should not allow this. The law should express a new normal, and that new normal should say unconscious racism is unacceptable, and behavior will follow. That's definitely right. And I'm curious, you know, I was trying to look in your book for this, and maybe you know something about this, but I remember about, Six years ago, I saw an article, actually it was in the Washington Post, about 
how different medic uh, medications are given to everyone, but for different races, they shouldn't be taking certain things. They're prescribed, you know, certain medications that they shouldn't take because there's a different, I don't want to say DNA, but really DNA with different races. And can you elaborate on that? Or Well, that is... Um... That is an area that I, I know a lot of people are studying precision medicine and how medicine should be right. um, clinically given uh, based on people's genetic differences and their uh, historic proclivities. Um, and, of course, that's an important topic um, that you're asking about. I don't write about that as much because I do believe the kind of inequality that I'm seeing is not clinical. It is not about genetic differences, and, and this is a really important point because, like I said earlier when we were talking about Grant Jones's group, the, uh, uh, the African-American Health Initiative in Denver, there are a lot of things that determine whether health is going to be um, good or bad, how health outcomes right. are going to be. And some of, it, some of it is clinical, Greg. Some of it has to do with genes and biology. Some of it has to do with uh, differences in the kinds of drugs that you are describing should be given. But my concern is that a very, very significant, um, uh, to a very significant degree, health is determined by whether people get an equal shot at good treatment. Uh, and we don't right now. Whether people of all races get an equal shot. Um, many of the people I interviewed were patients who had really moving stories, honestly, Greg, about how they suffered discrimination from people that didn't intend to be racist but were in, um, in, in their clinical environment unconsciously biased. And it's that kind of treatment that I'm seeking to equalize. And also, you know, there's another bias. I know you've heard this, and I used to hear it in the 80s and 90s when actually, you know, when I lived in D.C. the first time and then coming back here. And I'm going to, and I'm going to say this uh, university, actually, this hospital, Howard University Hospital. But it's, I've heard this over the years from other, predominantly black hospitals. Well, people will say this thing like, "Yeah, if you go there, you ain't coming back because you're going to die." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let me tell you, there are um, stories uh, that surprised me in in my in my research because I've been such an advocate for increasing the number of black, Latino, Asian, Native American uh, clinicians, whether nurses, physician assistants, or physicians. I've been such an advocate for that. Um, But I'll tell you just a couple of stories. I had some patients tell me that they felt the same level of discrimination from providers who shared their race. In, in, in one case, I can think about an African-American woman who said uh, she went and her physician told her um, uh, out of the kind of biased perception um, that I've seen documented in the literature but always thought was just unique to, to, to white physicians, it turns out it's not, right? right? Because implicit bias works both ways. Um, but she was telling me a story about how she um, had really um, – a hurtful and insulting encounter with her African-American physician who basically told her that her complaints were exaggerated. Uh, she needed to sort of buck up, so to speak. Those weren't his words. Um, but he was he was suggesting that she was wasting his time. Um, 
And this is the secret, Greg. If I can, if I can just go on for one minute longer, implicit sure. biases come from our environment. They come from the news we hear, the radio that we listen to, the television stations uh, shows that we hear. They come from the political debates that we hear, and we gather all of this over time, whether we're black, white, Chinese, Latino, whatever our experience. If the climate in our country tolerates a negative stereotype, that information is stored. And that stored information produces unconscious racism, no matter who you are, no matter what color you are. And so for that reason, we must diligently attend to reversing the discriminatory effects of this unconscious racism in health. You're definitely right. Again, listeners, you can call in at 424-675-8315. I'm talking to Dana Bowen. Matthew authored a book, Just Medicine, A Cure for Racial Inequality in American in American Healthcare. Now, you, you've given, one, you know, just one example of what someone could do, but talk about other things that the average person can do to kind of get some changes going. Well, there's quite a lot that can be done. Um I would like to think that this book will encourage healthcare providers to begin to talk about unconscious bias. There is an experiment that I love to talk about in which doctors who were tested for their unconscious bias, you know, Greg, we can actually measure quantifiably levels of unconscious bias with a very, very interesting test called the implicit association test. Well, the study I'm thinking about, yeah, the study I'm thinking about involved doctors who took this test, and once they found out that they had implicit biases, they made better treatment choices for cardiac patients. They made better decisions, more equal decisions, giving patients who were black and patients who were white more likely opportunity to have the same treatment. So what can providers do? Providers can do things that will negate stereotypes that we know exist. Providers can hire more people of color in their clinical staffs because we know that counter stereotypes change these unconscious biases. Patients can be aware of their own implicit biases or unconscious racism. And they can check themselves when they sense, for example, one of the things I've seen in the literature and stories that people tell me are they go into a physician's office and they can kind of tell if that physician is racially biased. And so if they are, they perceive or feel discriminated, they might not go back to the doctor. Right. They might not follow up their treatment. Because who wants to be discriminated against, right? Well, as individuals, we can be aware that these discriminatory instincts are something we have to combat and overcome in order to take care of ourselves. So those are a couple of things that individuals can do. And there's so much more. And I just want to thank you for being I could talk to you all day about this, the next hour and a half about this book and, what you know, What's going on in healthcare? And I'm I'm gonna put a plug in for just you that Black History Month is coming up. Uh, listeners out there, I think you should get Dana on some sort of program to talk about this. 
an excellent speaker. Wow, he, I she thank you. Knows her stuff. <laughs> and I, you know, the book is impressive, and you're even more impressive just listening to you. And I would just suggest that because this is a timely topic, and I'm just happy just to have you on here again. And the name of the book again is Just Medicine: A Cure for Racial Inequality in American Healthcare. It's on. New York University Press. And if anyone wants to contact you, where can they reach you, Dana? Greg, I'd be happy to take emails at dana.matthew at colorado.edu. So I'll spell it because my name, Dana, has a Y in it. D-A-Y-N-A dot Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W, at colorado.edu. And I'd be happy to write you back. Um, You can write to me on Facebook. Um, I've closed down my Twitter account because I'm working on Capitol Hill this year, and I I have to represent the government and not myself every day. So I really would welcome the conversation, and I am so grateful for the opportunity to be on your show. Well, I'm just, again, grateful that you wrote this book, grateful to have you on the show, hope to have you back on again, hope to meet you at some point. And somewhere between, you know, D.C. and Colorado, we'll meet at some point. I look forward to it, Greg. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for being on. You take care. Bye-bye now. All right, again, and that was Dana Bowen Matthew, author of the book Just Medicine, A Cure for Racial Inequality in American Health Care. And like I said, I'm serious. You know, if you need a speaker, and I don't, I don't do this, but I think that this topic is very important that you really reach out to her, especially you folks in Colorado, She's, she'll be back out there, so, you know, this is your opportunity to do that. So I hope you get the book. It's timely. It's all about everyone's dealing with health care. You either have health insurance or you're not, or if you know someone that's dealing with some sort of illness. Everyone does. Everyone does. So please pick this book up. Yes, you know, it will be worth your while. So we're gonna, And we're going to have her on again sometime soon. But I'm going to get to the next portion of the show now because, the next guest, we're going to be talking about old-time radio, one of my favorite subjects, as is health care, too. But we're going to, right now I'm going to do the story of Crispus Addicts from the, it was the first, this is the first show for the show Destination Freedom. And I've talked about Destination Freedom a number of times on the show, but I'm about to have, after we play this for a half hour, I'm going to have the next guest, Sonia D. Williams out of Howard University wrote a book called Word Warrior about the creator of Destination Freedom and other things, Richard Durham. And so we're going to play right now his first show with Destination Freedom called Crispus Addicts. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show. Oh, freedom, oh, freedom, oh, freedom over me. And before I'd be a slave, I'd be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. Destination Freedom. In cooperation with the Chicago Defender, WMAQ brings you Destination Freedom, 
A special radio series dramatizing the great democratic heritage of the Negro people, a part of the pageant of American history. The second president of the United States, John Adams, once said, The world will never forget the noble daring and excusable rashness of Crispus Attucks in the holy cause of liberty. On Boston Common, there stands a monument to his deed. Today, Destination Freedom tells the story of Crispus Attucks, the first American to give his life for American independence, a story entitled The Knock-Kneed Man. Boston, the soldiers looked all day and half the night for the knock-kneed men. In the year 1770, when a king wrote the laws of the land, they looked for the knock-kneed men. In Virginia, young Tom Jefferson had just passed the bar. In Jamestown, a slave ship docked with half its cargo dead. In Boston in 1770, freedom was a whisper, while the soldiers searched for the knock-kneed men. In the main square, Captain Cox surprised the guard. Guard. Have you, well, have you seen him? Who's there? It's your captain, you fool, lower that gun. Oh, well, I thought it was one of the rebels, sir. I thought... I asked you, have you seen him? Oh, I don't know what all I've seen tonight, sir. Just a uniform of the king's soldiers makes the crowds fighting mad. They threw stones at us all day, and tonight an old woman spat on me. We beat them down, we knocked their heads in, but still they mill around, waiting for a sign to attack us. What's gotten into the colonists, sir? What the... Stop ma- blubbering and answer my questions. I said, have you seen him? Him? Oh, I, I don't know, sir. What do you know? Do you know your orders? Yes, sir. Capture him if possible. Kill him if necessary. Then keep your eyes peeled. He'll be here as though he has an appointment with us. What are you nervous about? Well, it's, it's just that I'm new and I, I've never seen him before. Well, you can tell a black man from a white man, can't you? Yes, sir, but I don't know the particulars. His particulars don't matter. Once you see him, you know it's him. Where he came from, who his master was, I don't know. His name is uh, Crispus Attucks. Some 20 years ago, he was a slave. Now he leads the crowd. Wherever the rebels are, you'll find him. In the square, the captain talked, and the guard kept his eyes peeled for the knock-kneed man. Snow fell. Elsewhere in Boston, the knock-kneed man set out to keep his appointment, walked into the night and thought of a day 20 years earlier when he made his appointment. On that same day, a slave master had walked into a newspaper office with certain particulars for the editor. Particulars? How many particulars do you stupid editors need to catch one slave? Well, I'm not a bloodhound, sir. Do you know who I am? I haven't the slightest idea. I'm Cyrus Brown of Farmington. I own the mills your paper comes from. Well, if you'll just describe your man, Mr. Brown, we'll run an ad every day. I'm offering 100 pounds for his return. Well, yes, sir. 100 pounds. You writing this down? Oh, yes, sir. Uh, his name? Crispus. Crispus Attucks. Crispus Attucks. Age? Near 25. Looks 45. Mm-hmm. Any identification? Plenty. Cat of nine tail lashes on his back. He escaped before, you see. Mm-hmm. A height? Big fellow. Six feet, two inches tall. His knees? Um, yeah. Knees a bit closer together than the almighty usually puts knees. Knocked? Positively. Now, he wore a gray cap, checked woolen shirt, bearskin coat, had on my brand-new buckskin buckle-toed shoes, 
If he's not wearing brown stockings, he's wearing blue. Only had two pairs. In a month, the gray cap was black with mud from the ditches. The shoes wore out and the knock-kneed man went barefooted. In the New England hills, he staggered, slept, stole, fought, pushed ahead while dogs barked and hunters called. Catch him! Hurry up, catch him! Hundred pounds reward! A hundred pounds! A hundred pounds? Get my gun! Get my gun! He can't hold off long! Keep looking! He can't hold off long! He went down by the Quaker's place! Yeah, <laughs> Look, look, he's firing! He's held by his footprints! Hurry, men, hurry! Oh, no! He went this way! This way! He went this way, he went that way, he ran, he walked, he crawled. Then the knock-kneed man staggered into a barn, dropped down on the soft hay, forgot the dog's master's wits, fell asleep, and slept on while the cock crowed, and while a girl came near singing. Slept while she ran off and told her father. Yes, yes, now become Abigail. Reach me my shoes. Be sure it's a runaway slave. He looks like the paper thing. Uh, we should be needing the reward to pay off the king's men. Praise the Lord. What does he intend to do with him, father? I'll just let the Lord guide me. Where's the gun? How much reward was it? A hundred pounds. But we can't... We even... can. They're quartering troops in every big farmhouse. That much money could pay them off. Pay taxes, too. But, father, the church says you can't... Don't remind me of that girl. He's like thy mother. Rest her soul. Well... I'm ready. Don't stand there. What would the Lord say? Would the Lord want us to be slaves to the king's troops? A hundred pounds don't come our way every day. Now, lead the way. And in the cool morning, while the farmer figured the trigger of his blunderbuss, the knock-kneed man turned on his back as the cock crowed twice and opened his eyes. Get up! And put up the hands. He just stands there and stares at us. Keep the hands up or I'll blow the head off. He looks so tall and thin and tired. Who art thou? Can't thou speak? Yes, I speak, Father. Put down the gun. I'm not here to harm you. I said, who art thou? I'm Christmas Adams. You see, girl, it's him. Who's thy master? I'm my own master. No such thing. He belongs to Brown. He's going back to him. I'll never go back to slavery alive, Father. Then I'll take the back dead. Father, he doesn't mean that. The church says... To... Never mind, girl. It's money we need. It's money we'll get. I say it'll be a dead man you'll get. Do you think I dared the dogs and the hunters and the hunger? To be afraid to dare death from you? Stand aside, let me pass. Stand back! Going up the road, farmer. I said I'll shoot! Then shoot. Step aside and shoot. Man, for the sake of the Lord, don't pass me, sir. Then stand aside. Father, he dropped the gun. Oh, oh, Lord, what was I about to do? What has death and the fear of the king made me become? Did I escape the oppression in Scotland to become a slave hunter? Oh, Father. Ah, ah, no, girl. I told you the Lord would guide me, and he did. The cause of freedom is the cause of God. I know it. Oh, no. 
Under thee, stranger, thy courage forced me to keep my faith. Your faith kept me alive. Which road leads to Boston? Either. But would they have a bite to eat? A bite to eat. If you don't mind. Abigail, look alive, girl. Don't stand there gaping. Set the breakfast table. We've got a guest. The farmer fed a guest who was hungry for more than food. In New York, the people burned the image of King George. In Boston, a whaling ship skipper looked for sailors. Near the Quaker farmer's house, a British captain was on his way to quarter his troops on the farm. Inside, the farmer and the knock-kneed man spoke of ships and sailors. It's on the sea where they can be free, man. Head for the docks of Boston. Uh, do as I tell you. Is the sea free? Oh, for some it is. Find my brother Angus. He's skipper on the whaler. Tell him I sent you. Send him to Uncle Kirk? Mind your manners, Abigail. I think she'll be wanting another glass of milk. Yes, brother. You, you think he'll take me on? Might as well try. It's a rough crew he's got. But thou can take care of thyself. Father. Yes, Abigail? Soldiers are coming up the walk. Soldiers? The king's soldiers. There's a captain in front. Are they looking for Attic? No. No, not this time. No, it's for me. Open in the name of his majesty. Open in the name of the king. Let them in, Abigail. I know what they come for. What are they going to say to them? The Lord will tell me what to do when the time comes. Let them in. Yes, Father. You needn't hold me out and hide your valuables, farmer. I am not here to rob you. Then what art thou here for? Answer questions. Don't ask them. We need your farm to quarter the king's troops. Quarter the king's troops? Is there a war? There's no war, but there are rebels and radicals agitating against his majesty's laws. Our soldiers will see that taxes are paid and the laws are carried out. You'll quarter some of them here, unless you can pay for their upkeep elsewhere. Now, if you had 50 pounds... 50 pounds? 50 pounds. Don't stand there mumbling quicker. You have money hidden, I know it. How else could you afford a slave? He's not a slave. Well, then who is he? He is the only free man on my farm. To be free, the man with the knock knees left the farm and the soldiers behind. He left with his head full of dreams and his heart pounding for the new free life. He left knowing that there were other men enslaved besides himself. Other chains, other whips other slave owners. He came into Boston and looked for a job on a whaler. Is this Skipper Kirkland's boat sailor? Yeah, but we ain't taking on no stowaways. I'll be off. All I want is work, sailor. Work? On yes. this ship? You hear that, boys? Tenderfoot wants to work on the toughest ship on the sea. So get going while the going's good. Here, 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 here. What's going on? What's going on here? This here man comes aboard, sir, says he wants work. Well, has the king passed the law against that? <laughs> what do you know about the sea, mister? Only what your brother said. That it's free to some. 
Free, he thinks. He's never heard of the king's blockade. <laughs> quiet, men. Quiet. We need a sailor, and if a kin of mine sent him, he must be good. You know, with a whaling ship, man, winters are tough, works hard. Are you up to it? I'll make it. See here, Skipper, where'd he come from? He just walked out of nowhere. Uh, That's what I like. When did we start asking men where they came from? Did I ask you what prison you escaped from, Tom? Did I ask you why you signed up, Dan? You, Joe? Andy? If the new man can stand the work he's on, I'll ask for no pedigree. Only the usual question. What's that, Skipper? Your name. Crispus Attucks. Attucks. On what side do you place your loyalty? My loyalty? Hey, with the king or with the colonies? That depends, sir. On what? On what side there'll be freedom for me. Yeah. Fair enough. Mate, sign him on. You'll find the townspeople love us and the king's men hate us with a clannish crew. If the men like you, thumbs up. If they don't, there'll be the devil to pay. Now you'll be needing an outfit. Mate... Fetch Attic's a pair of pants. As you say, sir. You've had a rough time of it? I won't deny it. You got those pants, mate? Here's some that'll fit him, sir. Well, we'll just measure and see first. Stand up straight, Attic. Hmm? Hold your legs straight, man, so I can measure you. Yes. Can't you stand straight? I am standing straight, sir. No such thing. Are you trying to make a fool of me? Why, Skipper, no wonder he ain't standing straight. He's got knock knees. Got what? Knock knees. Hey, boys, take a look at these knock knees. <laughs> well, bless my soul, he stands like an ex he does. <laughs> Mate, look! Then the knock kneed man looked down at his own leg, and he too began to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> the laugh rolled out across the dock. The laughter rolled out and tied the men together. Laughter rolled out in the grog shops, in the town square, in the streets. It rolled out on the ship during the long, cold night. For 20 years, it rolled out while the king made new decrees. It rolled out when the British captain came aboard the whaler and shouted, Stop laughing! Stop laughing! What are they laughing at? My men always laugh when they work together, Captain. Huh? But there's a strong bond between us. Now, there's more than a bond between you. There's rebellion in your brain. I'm here to see that it doesn't spread to other ports. By orders of the king, you and your merry men will remain in dock hereafter. But you can't do that, man. I can do that and more. Furthermore, one of your sailors has been seen demonstrating against the king's decrees. You call him? I have 40 sailors. You have one Negro sailor. Will you call him? What do you want with him? Call him before me. Very well. Attucks. Skipper? Captain Cox wants to see you. Oh. So, you're the one we see with the crowds and wherever there are agitators against the king. Tell me, what do they talk about that draws you to them? They talk about freeing themselves from the king, don't they? They talk about revolt. Yes, they talk about freedom. So you're not afraid to admit it. And uh, what do you do? I listen. I listen and look. I believe you do more than listen. One act and you'll be hanged. Remember that. We'll look for it. It's for you, Skipper. Keep your men in port. You hear that? I hear it, but we'll petition the governor against it. 
Every sailor in Boston will fight this blockade. And if the governor doesn't answer you? We'll take our case to the king if necessary. And if the king doesn't answer, Skipper? Perhaps then we'll give our own answer, Captain. The knock-kneed man went out among the townspeople, listening, looking, searching. And the knock-kneed man heard the people saying, I say, Americans, tell the king to take his thieving troops out of our homes. I say, tell the king to take his troops out of our homes. I say no taxation without representation. I say no laws without our consent. I say the way to deal with the tyrant is to tear him out of your system. Tear him out. I say, give me liberty or give me death. Give me liberty or give me death. I say colonists black and white are born free and not slaves to a king. The not-need man said nothing. The knock-kneed man explored the hearts of the colonists. In the house of the skipper, the sailors waited. Watched the troops march down the streets. Watched the troops march. Look at them come, skipper. How many more will they send? Uh, they'll keep sending them until we stop them. Until they've beaten us out of our homes. Why do you keep us waiting here? Uh, to keep you off the gallows. <laughs> Because there's nothing else to do but wait until the governor answers us. And why doesn't Addicts wait with us? Addicts? Well, he's an odd one, he is. In New York last week, in Jamestown, in New Jersey. Sizing things up, he says, like he's searching for something. Always searching. We can stop his search now, Skipper. The king's men have found us again. Open the door. We've done nothing wrong. Open the door, mate. Aye, sir. Well, Skipper, what are your men plotting now? What do you want with us? Why can't you let us alone? It's you who sent for me, Skipper. We sent for you? You petitioned the governor to free your ship. Of course. My men are at the door. Obey my orders. Will you stand, Skipper, and receive your answer? Of course. But what is it? That's your answer. Now you know what the governor thinks of you and your petitions. Of you and your rebel sailors. Rabble like you roam around the streets yelling, freedom this, freedom that. Tonight, keep your rats in their holes, or there'll be a massacre in Boston. Now, do you want to take your petition higher to the king? No, no. Now, Captain, this time we'll bypass the king. The people were out in the cold Boston night. Soldiers slapped at the crowd with swords. In the night, the knock-kneed man knocked on the door of the skipper's room. Who is it? It's Alex. Skipper, it's Alex. Where you been, Alex? Skipper, wait, wait. Give him air. Let him rest. Now, speak up, Atticus. I've been along the coast. I've been in shops and on the docks. I've been out in the square with the crowd. What are they doing? They're trying to find a way to be their own masters. With sticks and stones against rifles, it's suicide. There's no way to beat off the soldiers. I know a way. Yes? Yes, Atticus? 
Well, I like the look in your eyes. Sit here. Pour him a nip of rum, mate. All right, sir. Now, Attix. You know a way? Yes, come on. It's this way. In New York, I saw the townspeople plant a tree, a dead tree, a, a flagpole. But they called it the Liberty Tree. It had flags on top of it that said, Liberty, Freedom. Yes, yes, go on. They planted it every day. And every day the, the king's men would cut it down. But they kept planting it. And why plant it? Why? So the idea of liberty would grow strong among the people. Is that all you've gotten out of your trips? Out there in the streets, our people are being beaten for speaking their minds. Here you sit and talk of planting trees. You talk of trees and we got a rope around our necks. Uh, wait, man, wait. Let Addicts finish. You expect us to go out into the square and plant a tree? Yes. But a different kind of tree. One no army can cut down. What are you talking about? I'll tell you. Once when I was a slave, I used to dream of freedom at night. But in the morning, I would wake up still a slave. But one day, I dreamed I could give my life for freedom. And when I woke up, I was unafraid, and nothing stood my way. Nothing could stop me from helping others win freedom. I could see that if everyone had freedom, no one would need to steal it from another man. Only then would we all be safe. That is why I say let's plant a liberty tree here in Boston. Even if, even if it cost us our lives. And our liberty tree has got to be ourselves. We've got to drive the soldiers from the square. Oh, you're out of your head. If we attack the troops, they'll shoot us down like rats. Skipper? We can't attack alone. We won't be alone. The people in the square will follow us. Oh, That's foolish. Skipper, you say nothing. You're in command here. What yeah, about, about it, Skipper? I'm thinking. I'm thinking there's sense in what Attic says, only... What? Yes, to strike a blow at the soldiers would let the people know their own strength. Only... Yes? We're like the rats who wanted to put the bell on the cat. That bell would awaken everyone in Boston, maybe every man in the colonies. But who'll lead? It'll be sure death. You, mate? Well, me? You, Joe? Skipper, I don't... Tom? Uh, don't ask anyone, Skipper. Let's draw straws for it. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's not a job for luck or chance. The man who leads can't waver. He's got to know why he does it and that he'll die doing it. How can we be sure of him? I say let him who wants most to be free speak up and strike the first blow. Skipper, how many men will follow me? Ten sailors followed the man with the knocked knees out towards the Boston Square. Two hundred townspeople followed the sailors while the king in London drove to a banquet. In Boston, the captain saw the crowd and the man with the knocked knees and warned the guard. Guard, guard, he's coming. Call the platoons together. They're ready, sir. Where is he? There, leading the crowd, coming this way. What shall we do, sir? I'll warn them. I'll warn them first. Go back to your homes or be shot. He just keeps coming toward us, sir. He's waiting on the others. Go back or I'll order the men to fire. 
He still comes, sir. Look, he's taking a gun from a guard. For the last time, Attics, in the name of His Majesty, your Lord and Master, I come I can tell you, King, with our own masters. Tell him. Fire! Tell him. Tell him. We are free men. He's down, Captain. He's down, but the people still pour over the square. Look, he's raising himself. Come on. You who want to be free, fight the best blow. under the crowd. In his head, he heard a cock crow twice. He heard bloodhounds bark. He heard sailors laughing. And then he saw the people take the square. The man with the knocked knees had struck the first blow. And news about the Boston Massacre hit the colonies like lightning. It hit the key on old Ben Franklin's kite. Patrick Henry's words burned the ears of the king. George Washington left his plantation life. In Boston, the people took the body of a black man with knocked knees and the bodies of white men and planted them like seeds in the same grave. In Monticello, Jefferson dreamed of a declaration of independence. In Boston, Crispus Attucks and his fellows had already declared it. In the night a new snow fell on the ground where he had planted his living tree. just heard the story of Christmas Attucks, as presented by Destination Freedom, a special radio series dramatizing the great democratic heritage of the Negro people. Destination Freedom is brought to you by WMAQ's Department of Public Affairs and Education and the Chicago Defender newspaper. Next week, we bring you the story of Harriet Tubman, one of the famed figures of the Underground Railroad. Destination Freedom is written by Richard Durham, and the production is under the direction of Homer Heck. The role of Crispus Attucks was played by Fred Pinkard, the narrator by Arthur McCool, the captain by Donald Gallagher, the skipper by Jess Pugh, Abigail by Janice Kingslow, the Quaker by Arthur Peterson, the mate by Maurice Copeland, the Guard by Charles Mountain, The Editor by Marvin Peisner, and the singer was Greg Pascoe. The special music was composed by Richard Shores and played by Elwin Owen and Bobby Christian. And this is Hugh Downs inviting you to be with us again next week for the story of Harriet Tubman on Destination Freedom.
This is NBC, the national broadcasting company.
And that was Stephanie Mills. It's a medicine song, the, the 12-inch version of it. I hope you enjoyed that on the Root & Root Show. If you're just tuning in, this is Greg Rasheed, the host of the Root & Root Show. And that went out to uh, my first guest. You know, we were talking about uh, her book, uh, Just Medicine, A Cure for Racial Inequality in American Healthcare. And that was a Dana Bowen uh, Matthew. And I'm waiting for my second guest to come on here. But we got tons of music. If um, our guest is a little delayed here, we got a lot of music on here, got a little bit of everything. And I want to say um, congratulations uh, to uh, Ken Griffey, Jr., and also uh, Mike Piazza for getting into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And glad to see that. And also glad to see, too, that Barry Bonds, and I just, every time I bring up Barry Bonds' name anywhere, brings up controversy, but the fact is he got 44% of the vote, and that's up from what he was getting initially. And I predict in five years that Barry Bonds, along with Roger Clemens and some of the other steroid guys, will be in the Baseball Hall of Fame. I think they'll get in there and just, they'll just say that that whole era was the era of steroids, and that you know that's what was going on. Is there, it's an era, there's always something going on in baseball, and those of you who think that was so horrible, just remember that at the time, initially, steroids, the type of steroids some of these guys were allegedly using, they were not banned by Major League Baseball. It's only after the congressional hearings and when folks like Manny Ramirez was being caught after they put the new law in in baseball, that's when they really, anyone that was doing it after then, that's when, you know, I would really question those guys because they continued doing things knowing what the law was. But the era, you know, that's from 90, you know, they want to say from 98 to 2005, but I would say you can look at the late 60s as far as steroids kind of creeping in in Major League Baseball because it was already in the NFL. But that's another story in itself. But I feel like, you know, Barry Bonds and, Clemens and you know the folks that definitely you know they believe had steroids as well as Jeff Bagwell and eventually A Rod Alex Rodriguez will be in the Baseball Hall of Fame. But we're waiting for our next guest here, and since she is not coming in yet, I'm going to have to check and see what's going on. So in the meantime, I'm going to play. This is from. Uh, let's see, what will we do? I'm going to do the Mohawks. I'm going to, do, I'm going to go back in time. I'm going to do the... No, we're going to do that because that's a little long here. Let's see. I think we will play... I'm trying to see. I got, I got so much music I got, you know, that I can go through the library. And just. I'm trying to get something real quick just in case the guests show up immediately. So I think we will do... Last thing, a DJ Save My Life. And that's by a group... Oh, you know, this is from the um, 80s, uh, In Deep. So let's hear them on the Root and Root Show. Cause I was sitting there bored to death And 
I, and I want to thank everyone, first of all, that listened to last week's show, the tribute to Natalie Cole. I mean, I really got tremendous response from that. And I'm going to actually play a, a song I played last week in honor of Natalie Cole. I'm going to do this one again, La Costa, because I love that song. So let's hear that on the Root and Root show.
and that was Natalie Cole. And, you know, we did a tribute, as I said, in the last show, and I thought I'd play that again because I love that song. And just, you know, just like one of the greatest singers ever and just tragic. But she lived a wonderful life and just left a legacy, and she's at the Heavenly Choir now with her father, Nat King Cole. But we're going to get proceed with the continue with the show, and I believe my guest is on the line now. I'm going to take a chance. I hope this is my guest. Um, are you there, Asonia? I am here. All right, all right. We can get hey, this how are going you? now. I am fine, and I have on the line listeners, and you can call in by the way at four two four six seven five eight three one five. I played earlier Destination Freedom, the first show, Christmas Addicts, and Sonia, and I should say Sonia D. Williams is uh, the author of an amazing book on a unknown for a lot of people, probably ninety nine point nine percent of folks are not aware of Richard Durham. But the book, this book will open your eyes to him. Word Warrior, Richard Durham, Radio and Freedom. I'm just honored to have you on here, Sonia. And just, um, first of all, I just, you know, you, I'm just so impressed about this book. Because it's not a long book, but there's so much detail in here. And I thought (laughs) I knew, I thought I knew about Richard. Because I, you know, I'm a, anyone who's listened to my shows for many years know that I love old-time radio. And from time to time, I'll play Destination Freedom or Amos and Andy on here also. I'll I'll do that if it has a uh, African American link to it and talk about it. So I was happy when I learned about this book and you know I first heard of you on WPFW and that's why I mm-hmm. found out about mm-hmm. the book. And I oh, said okay. I have to have her on. I have to have her <laughs> on because I have you know because I I collect anything involving old time radio, especially when it's dealing with our folks. Mm-hmm, and I have mm-hmm. a book called The Encyclopedia of Black Radio in the United States, 1921 to 1955. Mm-hmm. They talk about Richard Durham, but they leave out so much. And mm. I'm just and so happy. There is so much that's left in, you know, out of this book, out of out of that book. But you have covered everything because he was more than just a writer on radio. He did so much more. But tell my listeners first of all. What inspired you? And by the way, I want my listeners to know this is a award-winning professor at Howard University. I mean, we get from time to time we get award winners on this show, and it's just like an honor just to have someone like this on this show this evening. But what inspired you? You know, reading the book, I know already, but tell my listeners what inspired you to really write about him. Right, right. Well, um, uh, unlike you, I, I didn't listen to a lot of um, old-time radio uh, in the past. But in the 90s, I had the opportunity to work for the Smithsonian, the National uh, Museum of American History. And there was a unit in that uh, museum um, where uh, people there worked on documentaries for radio and television. And so I was hired as a producer for a series that was going to look at the history of blacks and radio, and the series was called uh, Black Radio, Telling It Like It Was. It was a 13-part series, 13 half hours of um, looking um, at our involvement in radio from ra- radio's earliest days um, through the 90s. And so one of the shows that I was responsible for producing was about um, the 30s and 40s, you know, the so-called golden age of radio. 
And um, and so two of my colleagues at Howard said, well, if you're going to uh, be producing a show about that period, you have to include a show called Destination Freedom, which I had never heard of, <laughs> and you have to talk about Richard Durham, who I also hadn't heard of. Even though, uh, interestingly enough, you know the way synergy is, um, I went to school to, to uh, college in Chicago, and um, oh where I was on the south side was maybe just a few blocks away from where he and his wife lived um, then. <laughs> but, you know, I had no idea. And, you know, as a college freshman, you know, you're just kind of in your own world. Um, but but right. anyway, in, in terms of producing the show, when I started the research and then heard episodes, tapes of episodes of the series, I was I was just blown away. I said, "Wow, this is amazing um to hear this kind of drama and insight and and compelling work that really just kind of grabbed you from the beginning and held you through the the whole half an hour um episode that Destination Freedom um was." And so that's how I got into Richard Durham because from from his radio program, from the the series Destination Freedom, um, I wanted to find out more about him, and the more research um, that I did, the more I found out, as you said, that he um, not only was a phenomenal radio uh, scriptwriter and producer, but he did so much more. And when I found out about the so much more, I was surprised that no one had written about him. And you know, the whole saying, "If not you, then who?" <laughs> and right. I ended up you know. uh, deciding to write the book. And I hadn't heard of him either until I got a compilation, because I used to have old-time radio shows on cassette. Well, actually, originally when I was little in the 60s, my family got one of those long jeans albums that had old-time radio on it, and that's when Mm -hmm. I really got Mm -hmm. into it. And then I had it on cassette. And then in the 90s, I got a compilation I was using the car, because I wanted to hear some stuff in the car, music, and sometimes just listen to old-time radio. I got this right. compilation that had everything in it from Amos Andy to Superman, and you just name it. But in the, you know, in the midst of it was Destination Freedom, and I said, I never heard of this. <laughs> and they, and I, they sent me the Satchel Page one, and it just blew me away. Uh, and uh-huh. I started collecting them, getting them, and it's just, and they're just, they're just incredible what he was doing. And one of the things. Um, that I didn't know, but by reading your book, I didn't know that he also wrote some scripts for the Lone Ranger. Right, right, right. In in w- one of the things that happened with Durham was he, well, well, first he was born in 1917 and um and and lived in the rural South in Mississippi where he was born um, until he was five years old, and then his parents and along with his siblings. Uh, they became part of the great migration of African Americans who left the South for the North and better opportunities. And clearly his parents, his father and mother, were both um, um, students and lovers of the word, of, of, of reading and of knowledge and of literature. So they saw um, a move North as a way of, of increasing the opportunities for their children in terms of education, and of course also for increasing their um, ability to to really kind of um, have a better life um, in the future as they matured, um, and and of course there were more 
uh, job opportunities for both his mother and father there. So they moved to Chicago, and Chicago is where he lived for the rest of his life. But he was also a child of the Depression, so he was um, a teenager um, or even a preteen when the the, um, Depression hit. And um, later on, uh, when he was, uh, I guess, in his 20s, his early 20s, he was able to um, to apply to and get a job with the WPA. Um, and the Works Progress Administration, a lot of people don't, don't really know this, but they had, um, around the country in the various states, had writers' projects, and projects that were actually not just for writers but for artists. Because the the theory was that, yes, you need to get people back to work um, during this this really devastating depression uh, period, but you also needed to um, get artists who could document life um, during this period. And and so that's how you get some of the WPA murals that um, you know that were really done by some some phenomenal um, black and white artists. You get photographers going into the South and the North and the West, um, photographing what life was like during the Depression. And you get writers who are part of these writers' projects around the country. So he he becomes part of that, and that's really how he gets into radio. Um, because there was a radio unit in the Illinois Writers Project, and um, he, <laughs> once he found out about it, he just fell in love with it. And every week, uh, the writers in that unit unit would get together and critique each other's scripts. They would write for local radio programs, um, dramas, both original dramas and adaptations of. Uh, classics by people like Anton Chekhov and and others. And so that's how his apprenticeship started. And when the WPA um, and the Illinois Writers Project um, uh, fell apart, or at least when the funding stopped, then he decided that he wanted to remain uh, a radio writer. And one of the things he did was he applied to, uh, they were looking for freelance writers to work on The Lone Ranger because it had become so popular. It was on three times a week, and then I think at one point it was on uh, almost daily, five times a week. And so they needed uh, writers who could help, um, you know, create the scripts for this popular show. And he applied, even though people said, oh, you're not going to get that. You're a black man. Nobody's going to hire you for this. But his writing was so good that he was hired as one of the freelancers. And this was, you know, for the Lone Ranger. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. One of the most popular shows of that era. Right, right. And and that wasn't the only one, too, because he he also um, was hired as a freelancer for another uh, soap opera called Ma Perkins, which was also pretty popular um, during the 30s and and 40s. And um, he was able to meet the woman who was called the Queen of the Soaps, her name was uh, Erna Phillips, and she was Chicago-based. But <laughs> most of the soap operas that people watch on television today had their roots in radio. And she was considered the queen of the soaps because she, she came up with these ideas for these soap operas, these these daytime dramas that were geared towards um, women listeners. And they became so popular that when television came around, you know, then they moved to TV. 
and originally they were called they were called soap operas because they were the whole purpose was advertising soap, you know, detergent no soap and all. And right. I can't remember which was the first one, but it was like, well, we got to create a story around this. You know, we're trying to sell something, so they created this little drama, and mm-hmm. it just grew and mm-hmm. grew. But you know, <laughs> right, I'm curious. Exactly. I'm, you know, I really like, and by the way, listeners, you can call in at uh, 424-675-8315. I'm talking to Sonia D. Williams, author of the amazing book on the amazing life of Richard Durham. It's called uh, Word Warrior, Richard Durham, Radio and Freedom. Now, I was, you know, I was fascinated reading about uh, the detail of how he did some of the Destination Freedom shows and how mm-hmm. he was he was up against and first of all I was amazed when the irony of the station that he was doing it on. So talk a little bit about that because it was the same station of another show that came on started in the twenties. Right. Right. <laughs> and that other show was Amos and Andy. Um right. which because again he was living in Chicago, he heard um as a as a preteen. Um it started, Amos and Andy started actually in the late 1920s, 1927 actually, or 28. Right. Um, and then um, it became so popular on WMAQ, which was one of the top stations, radio stations in, uh, in Chicago, that um, NBC decided, hey, this, this thing is so popular here, we should send it nationwide and distribute it. Um, through the NBC network. So in 1920, um, uh, 28, 29, it became a national show, and it was it became a, a phenomenal hit. I, 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 you know, I tell with my students sometimes, and it's, it's hard for them to um, to realize it. Okay, here you have a, a show that is about these black characters who moved from the north, from the south to the north, to Chicago specifically. And they're these ne'er-do-well um, guys who, you know, kind of butcher the the English language, and and they're getting into the, all right. these capers and these comic situations. But they were white men portraying black men, <laughs> and yes, they're people. they're other characters. So there were, um, you know, women, and they were all uh, white um, vaudevillians portraying these black characters. So that was the first thing. The other thing was that it was so popular that at at one point, um, theaters, if you happened to, to go to the theater during the time when Amos and Andy was broadcast, they would stop the show and play That's right. <laughs> play the they radio walk, uh, series. Oh, yeah. They yeah, said you could walk it was, down it was the just street. Amazing. I think it was Monday nights. You could walk down the street and you would hear it coming from <laughs> right. every home. Both black right. and white. I have to, and right. I have to say this before we talk more about your book is that I've been trying to get the author of a book about Amos and Andy on my show for the past three years now, and I think she's mm-hmm. afraid that I'm going to attack her because mm. she's white and she thinks. But no, I Amos and Andy, and I always tell this to my listeners when I do old time radio shows and I talk about Amos and Andy is that without Amos and Andy. There would be no situation comedies as you know them now. They mm-hmm. started the formula. They started right. that whole formula. I'll just leave it at that. But getting back to uh, Richard Dorff. Well, yeah. Was, you know, it, was, it, was very, it was very revolutionary to put this type of show on because at the time, 
you got to keep in mind, he's talking about Crispus Attucks, uh, Denmark Vasey, but he tried to do, I believe, Nat Turner. And talk about what happened when he tried to do that one. Well, yeah, and and that was the other thing. Um, let me get to Nat Turner in just a second. That you know, okay. this WMAQ was the same station that um, that was the host station for Amos and Andy. So Durham thought that, oh, this is I, I don't know that MAQ is going to air Destination Freedom because here you have the total opposite. Here you have black characters who were essentially freedom fighters in their own way, whether they were education um, folks like, or, or journalists like, say, Ida B. Wells or Mary Church Terrell or uh, Sojourner Truth or Ralph Bunch. You, you had these characters who were dignified and accomplished. They were basically heroes and heroines in their fields. Um, on the same station <laughs> that you had Amos and Andy on. So he thought initially they would not want to do it. But once um, they agreed to air the show um, and they they saw how great, how, how really well written the scripts were and how well acted they were, they loved it and they supported it. So... Um, so he had these characters, uh, a range of historic and contemporary characters, and one of the shows he wanted to, to do was about Nat Turner. Um, but NBC officials said, no, <laughs> no, he, Nat Turner is just, that's a little bit too controversial and too radical, um, given, you know, the fact that he led this right. slave revolt in which, you know, several white uh, slave owners were killed, and their families, for that matter. Um, so, so because he knew that he couldn't do uh, Nat Turner, he decided, or one of the alternates was to deal with Denmark Vesey, who was lesser known but also led um, or, or, or pulled together a really massive um, slave revolt that was, that was really kind of um, put down before it really gained traction. But the same kind of fervor that, you know, you need, we're talking about freedom and getting people out of bondage, and if you had to do it at the point of a gun, so be it. And one of the things that came out of this whole Denmark VC program was at the end, um, when VC is on trial for treason against the state of South Carolina, um, the VC character in Durham's script says, well, until all men are free and equal, the revolution continues. So, and this is 1948. So, to have a black character, <laughs> you know, say those words on radio right. during this time was just kind of phenomenal. <laughs> and actually, I could say, in some circles in this country, it's revolutionary to say that right now on radio <laughs> on television. Right. You know, right. right. There's still some places where you cannot do that. Right. If you say right. something like that, people will look at it and say, wait a minute, that's not right. <laughs> but it's just so, you know, but, you know, it's funny that at one point he tries to get a, oh, what's the author's name? That he wants him, he wants to do his story on there, and they won't allow it because the of his company doesn't want people to know that he's black. Yeah, we're talking about, I believe it's Frank Irby. Um, uh, yeah, there you go who was a um, really best-selling author, a novelist. Um, but because he dealt with characters in the antebellum South and they were, his protagonists were white characters, um, 
there was the understanding. Now, we don't know if this is true, but the conjecture was that they didn't want him featured on Destination Freedom because it would be clear that because Durham's focus was, you know, African-Americans or, or at least black heroes, that um, people would then uh, know that Yerby was, was a black. And from his writing, you wouldn't necessarily know that. So, yeah. Right. So he decided that, that, not to. That's really, and it's something I think you say in the book, too, that Oscar Brown says, Oscar Brown Jr. says at one point, well, it doesn't matter. It's radio. Nobody's going to know. Right, right. That's true. Um, but, you know, we're talking about a time when, when separate and unequal was really right. clearly the order of the day. So, <laughs> Right. So, yeah. And, you know, it, and as far as how he was paid then was really separate but equal. And talk a little bit about then how he – didn't have a research staff, really, except, I guess, at the library. Well, he didn't have an official research staff, and he complained about that. I mean, he was really doing this um, because of his conviction and love of history and of drama. Um, he was paid on a script-by-script basis. He was not a salaried uh, WMAQ employee, um, and he didn't have a staff. <laughs> it was him. Um, his wife, Clarice, uh, also helped in the typing of the scripts and, and helping him get it together. But in terms of research, um, he went to the Chicago Public Library um, branch that was in his neighborhood, and that was the uh, Cleveland Hall Branch Library, which was, the, I, I guess, the first and probably for a long time the only black uh uh, Chicago Public Library branch on the South Side. So there, he um, he had been going there since I guess he was a teenager, and he knew Vivian G. Harsh, who was the head librarian. Um, and so she and her her staff would um, help him by he would come in with his list of the characters he wanted to portray and or wanted right. to work on. And then they would say, okay, well, let's see what we have in our files. And Vivian G. Harsh, to her credit, um, from the time she started at the Hall Branch Library in 1932, she developed what was then called the Negro Collection of, of books and documents um, documenting Negro life. And that is now the Vivian G. Harsh Research Collection in the Chicago Public Library. And, and it's the largest um, collection of black um, documents in the Midwest. But that's that's how he was able to get the information he needed to base his um, his dramas on. You know, as, you know, as we talk, and I would encourage you really listeners to read this book because um, I know there's some younger listeners out there, some older ones too, who are like saying, you know, this doesn't seem too revolutionary, but it is. We got to look <laughs> at the time. Like Sonia said, this is very revolutionary. This is very progressive and dangerous too for right, what he was right. doing at that time. And you gotta consider right. at the time on radio, as far as black shows, you know, you had again as Sonia said, the Amos and Andy, then you had uh what's his name, Ernie Green on Duffy's Tavern and then Rochester, Eddie Anderson on Jack Benny mm-hmm. and then the Beulah show and you don't have, you know, and they're all comedies. They're all comedies, and and all the black characters, for the most part, are subservient types. They're butlers, they're maids, and there's nothing wrong with being a butler or maid. It's really fine, except that 
if that's all you are, if if that's the only image you see of of black people, then there's something wrong with that. Because yes, maids and butlers and and were were really some of the backbone of the black community in terms of the work. But you also had um, politicians, you had teachers, you had doctors, you had lawyers, you had a range, you had you know athletes who were at the top of their game, and that was his point that you can present um black life uh in 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 his case some of the best uh representatives of black life whether they were in the United States or abroad and inspire folks because these people represented what is possible when you you're dealing with freedom justice and equality and if you are fighting against that by whatever it is that you're doing, then, you know, it's powerful because you're, the, these people are using their talent and knowledge and skill to advance um, positive social change. That's right. Now, I, the first time I actually heard of Richard Durham was when I read the book The Greatest. Mm-hmm. You know, he wrote about Muhammad Ali, Muhammad Ali's mm-hmm. autobiography. Talk about, right. tell my listeners how he ended up writing for the Nation of Islam. One minute he's with NBC, and now he's with the Nation of Islam. Well, there were years in between there. So. Right, right. So he didn't go from radio to uh, to. Oh, well, before, before you Ali. bring that up, I want, I want you to talk about the first, um, his television effort, because that's oh, very important. Okay, all right. Well, he, um, from his experience writing for radio, um, and as you know, by the late 40s, this new thing called television was becoming popular, and um, and it was going to be, you know, starting to become clear that this could be, uh, you know, you never know, but it could be the even more popular, or as popular, if not more popular than radio, um, because radio was really kind of the main entertainment um, point in the home. So television comes in, and he's like, hey, this is another opportunity for me to work in media and to to get into something that now I can deal with visuals and sound. So he he wanted to get into television, but he was thwarted in that attempt because he ended up suing NBC, which I talk about in the, in the book. Um, right. Well, when you sue the big kid on the block, you know the 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 Goliath, and you're David. Then clearly, <laughs> you're going to have a problem getting work <laughs> in the new medium that is being proposed by Goliath. Um, and so he couldn't work in television. But fast forward to the late 1960s, and um, and he was able then to um, to get into working on television because <clears throat> excuse me, WMW. TTW, which is the PBS uh, affiliate station in Chicago, had proposed uh, uh, creating a show, a series about black life in Chicago. Um, and they started looking around for possible scriptwriters, and of course his name came up. They um, they met with him and said yes, and he became the head writer of a show that ended up being called um, Bird of the Iron Feather. And it looked at what was happening with black life in Chicago. But his 
<laughs> and his take on it was that he wanted to not only just deal with it from a family perspective, but the protagonist was actually a black police officer, which you think is, oh, my God. <laughs> so, the, the police even back then did not have the best uh, reputation in the black community. So for him to say, yeah, my protagonist is going to be this black police officer, which allows uh, him and his staff of writers to talk about relationships between um, police and the community, um, health concerns, uh, school issues, a whole range of issues um, in relationship to the family. That's something. That's really amazing. (laughs) <laughs> and he did that. Now, and I want to thank you before we talk about him in the Nation of Islam and Muhammad Ali. I want to thank you for including a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine in Denver, mm-hmm. Donald L. Best, because he's the one that started producing those shows as far as having an actual live audience and bringing in uh, Oscar Brown Jr. in like 2007 to actually recreate it- some of the shows. Yes, yes. Um, what Donnie did was, uh, in in the early 2000s, he asked Mrs. Durham if it was possible to uh, take some of Durham's uh, Destination Freedom scripts and then recreate them for radio, contemporary radio. And she said yes, and <clears throat> excuse me, he started producing that. And um, And so for one of the shows, it was actually a show about Gwendolyn Brooks, um, the the right. wonderful poet and writer, um, the first uh, Pulitzer Prize winner um, in poetry as a, as an African American, um, and so what he did was he brought back Oscar Brown Jr., uh, Studs Terkel, and Fred Pinkett. All of those men were originally in the 1948 um, uh, series, and they came. They went to Denver. Um, they, you know, recreated their roles, and it was, you know, it was really phenomenal. It was amazing. It was really <laughs> something, and that, yeah. And Don, you know, because Donnie, yeah, we were real, you know, we were real good friends. We worked at the same station there, okay. KGNU, and also in KUVO. So, you know, and I'm hoping he's listening to this because I told him <laughs> that you would be on here tonight. So that, that's yeah, really great. Yeah, but we got a, a few guy. minutes. Oh yeah, we got a few minutes. But I want you to. We're going to fast forward. We're going to go back and kind of fast forward with the whole Muhammad Ali, Nation of Islam, how he got involved in that. Right, right. Well, it, what happened was in the early 60s, um, um, Malcolm X had started, well, he's credited with starting a paper called Mr. Muhammad Speaks in New York, in Harlem. Um, but it, it, it quickly, the the operation of that newspaper moved back to Chicago, which is where the Nation of Islam and Elijah Muhammad were based. <clears throat> Excuse me, and the and the paper became known as Muhammad Speaks. What Elijah um, decided to do, and and his officials were, to find the best um, writers that they could to help develop this paper that they saw not just as a paper for people in the nation but a paper that would educate black people, you know, in right. throughout America and around the world. And so what they um when when a position came open, um Richard Durham's name came up as well as another writer and and publisher, uh Gus Savage who would go on to become a congressman. And so they both went met with uh the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and 
um, Durham decided that he was going to uh, go ahead and take the job as editor of Muhammad Speaks. Um, he he did not convert to Islam. He was not a, nation, uh, a member of the Nation of Islam. But because he was so uh, such a phenomenal writer and a skilled journalist, uh, he had got he had kind of honed his journalism skills in the 40s, uh, working for the Chicago Defender. That um, he became the editor, and he remained the editor for almost all of the 60s. Well, as a result of working for Muhammad Speaks, he became friends with Muhammad Ali. Um, and when Ali <laughs> was uh, essentially booted out of um, boxing because he refused to be inducted into right. uh, the Army um, and refused to fight in Vietnam, um, one of the things that they thought about in terms of helping him make a living for his family and, and himself was that you know he should write his autobiography, and they figured that it would be a bestseller, just given his um, his fame and his you know controversial stance. Um, well, in looking at who could help him with this project, clearly they um, approached Richard Durham. Um, given his association with the nation and the paper and and his you know his writing ability, and Durham said yes. So for the next, this was in 1970. So from 1970 until the book came out in 1975, Richard Durham essentially followed Ali everywhere, <laughs> and and recorded him in conversation with his family members, with friends, with fellow boxers, with you know a range of people, and and that's how. Um, the greatest came out. But the, the really interesting thing, too, was that both Ali and Durham um, had to work with the editor for the publisher that they had, and that was Random House. And their editor was Toni Morrison, the, the, another phenomenal writer, yes. um, who was a senior editor at Random House at the time. So um, she she becomes their editor, and they're hoping that they'll turn this manuscript around so that it can become a book as soon as possible. But years start kind of ticking away, and they're like, what are you doing? We, we need this book. Um, but, but I think what happened in, in terms of uh, once Ali could fight again, the thought from Durham's perspective was that maybe the book needed to end when Ali regained his um, championship um, you know, belt. And uh, that happened, of course, in 1974 in Zaire. So you follow Ali um, as he talks about his life through his getting back into fighting after, um, you know, the ban, and then, you know, winning the championship back. That book is, and that book is, if you've never read it, that book is amazing, listeners. I mean, you have to check it out. It is, out. and you know, just just in November, uh, I think it was the middle of November, it, it had kind of gone, gone out of print, but it is now back in print. It just came back out as a paperback and as an e-book um, in November, and so, you know, if listeners haven't uh, seen it or read it, they, they can easily find it now. It, you know that book is amazing, but your book is amazing about Richard well, Dorman. Thank you. We could, I mean, we could talk forever about him because I, I'm running out of time here. But you know, we could get into you, each segment of his life, each person he dealt mm -hmm. with. We could, you could spend hours just talking about that, from Radio <laughs> Nation Islam and, and his last effort with Harold Washington. 
Right. I mean, that's, you know, I didn't even realize that. I didn't yes, know that. Yes. Well, their friendship went back to the 40s. Um, Harold was a, a colleague, a, a college colleague of uh, Durham's younger brother, Earl. And so that's how he met Harold back in the 40s. And then they remained friends. But in the 80s, uh, when um, Harold Washington was recruited and decided that he was going to run for mayor uh, a second time, the first time he, he really didn't do well. But, you know, when, he, when it was clear that he was going to jump in the race and run, um, people said, well, you really need to have someone who can help you frame and, and shape your media campaign and, you know, help you with your scripts and all. Not that Harold Washington couldn't do it himself because he was very, right. very articulate and, and a bright guy. But, you know, you're running a campaign. You can't do everything. <laughs> so um, so everybody said, hey, what about Richard Durham? And, um, and Harold said, hey, that, he's the man. Let's do it. And so they would ride around to campaign stops um, almost every day. Um, Richard was right with Harold Washington, and, you know, he would help. He, he would either write or help write the scripts that, that uh, Washington delivered, and he would, you know, guide him and be a strategist, talk about some of the things that he needed to do. And that, um, Yeah, and that's yeah. so incredible. And I, I, have to, I hate to cut you off because we've got to get out of here now, but I want you to leave. I want you to uh, tell folks if they want to reach you, where they can contact you at, because the, the book is just fascinating. We can go on and on with this. <laughs> well, well, yeah. Um, my email address, well, I have a website. It is Sonia D. Williams, and that's Sonia, S-O-N-J-A, D. Williams, dot com. And my email address is, is pretty much the same as Sonia at Sonia D. Williams, dot com. Well, Sonia, just thank you so much for being on today and just writing this superb book and just bringing well, back thank you. someone who who is an activist, a, just an le- excellent legend, not only in uh, black history, but just history, U.S. history in general. What he did is just amazing. And I just want to <laughs> thank you for writing this book and hope to meet you sometime. Just thank you so much for being on today. Oh, thank you for having me, and I, I look forward to meeting you as well. All right, you take care. All right. Thank you so much. All right, you take care. And again, that was Sonia D. Williams, and the book is Word Warrior, Richard Durham, Radio and Freedom. It's on the University of Illinois Press. This is a a person that you should know, forgotten person in black history and just, and like I said, in U.S. history, because he did so much. If you ever see the movie Zelik, he was like that. He was involved with everyone. It's just amazing, just the things that Richard Durham did, just amazing. But I'm just happy, again, that you tuned in today, and those of you who listen on a delayed basis, which the majority of you do, just want to thank you, and thank you for your kind messages, and those that are following. If you want to be a new follower, you can go to my Facebook site, Greg, G-R-E-G, last name Rashid, R-A-S-H-E-E-D. You can reach me also on Twitter, hashtag Unifix. U-N-I-F as in Frank, I-C-S as in Sam. And also you can go to the blogtalkradio.com site and look for Root and Root Show, and you can leave messages there if people have done. If you have suggestions for future topics on the show, as a lot of people do, that's how I get a lot of these topics, is people let me know about 
things and say, well, you should talk to this person. You should do this. You should interview this person. Or you should play this music. And that's what I do. So, again, this is again, anyway, I'm just so excited. But, again, this is Greg Rasheed with the Root and Root Show. And I want to thank, again, my first guest, Daniel uh, Bowen Matthew, also the book Just Medicine. And also my last guest today, Sonia D. Williams, also the book Road Warrior, Road Warrior, Word Warrior. Road Warrior is the Mad Max thing. But, anyway, here's Greg Rasheed again. And we're going to have a. Great, another simulating show coming up on Saturday, but just tune in and we're going to do, you know, we're going to be talking about African Americans and environment. And we've done that on here before, but it's all about the issue of cleanliness. And you have to tune in just to learn more about that. And also, I'm going to do a tribute to one of the um, founding members of the group, The Whispers. He passed earlier in the weekend, so we're going to do a musical tribute to one of the folks on Whispers Nicholas. So tune into that show. But again, this is Greg Rasheed with the Root and Root Show. Go in love and go in peace, and we'll see you next time. And be be kind to someone, give someone a hug, help someone along the way, because you don't know when you're going to need that help. So we'll see you next time on the Root and Root Show. Take care, everyone. Thank you.